3: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. What happens to a dream deferred? Asks poet Langston Hughes in Harlem. Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Hughes, an African-American, wrote that poem in 1951. And six years later... It would be memorialized in the first play by a black woman ever to be performed on Broadway. Lorraine Hansberry's influence went far beyond A Raisin in the Sun, as Tracy Heather Strain explores in her documentary, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart. Later this hour, we'll listen back to an interview with the filmmaker about Lorraine Hansberry, who famously said, in order to create something universal, you must pay very great attention to the specific. First, the cello as sonic kaleidoscope. My advisor has been described as the reigning queen of avant-garde cello and a cello rock star by Rolling Stone. In 2005, Philip Glass invited my advisor to perform the solo cello part of his score to Nacroikatsi on a worldwide tour with the Philip Glass Ensemble. Her new recording is devoted entirely to music of Philip Glass, and she joins us now via Zoom to talk about the album My advisor, welcome to City Lights.
2: Thank you so much.
3: People are familiar with concert cellists, those who perform with orchestras, cellists who play chamber music, quartets, trios, and so on. But you've created an extraordinary career as a solo cellist, Would you explain how your artistic self-expression evolved and also the role of technology within that path?
2: Yeah, I think the one thing that probably can define my career is the fact that it was always surprising in some way or another to me. And I never limited myself in any sort of um dogma. Even though I'm I'm classically trained and I started to play very young, I've always wanted to expand the vocabulary. A lot of it is because in my mind music is a very visual thing and is a very expansive, you know, form of art. And so to me, it connects to everything. And I always felt that I wanted to create these big sound sculptures with my cello. And so of course, when the technology that we have today really allows me to do that. So I've started to create these uh, kind of multi-tracking. Yeah, I'd like to think about it as a multi-layered sound sculpture with a lot of my recordings where I just, you know, I overdub and create loops and, um, and just kind of expand <laughs> the sound of, of the instrument.
3: Mm. You've spoken about building an entire universe of sound with many diverse layers. All yes. from your one instrument. What track would illustrate that well on this new recording?
2: Well, probably the very first track, which is at uh, your number five. I was thinking, in this album in particular, I was thinking about stratum, you know, which is the layering that occurs in rocks that are formed on, on the Earth's surface. And I was imagining the layers of my cello becoming porous, and that Philip Glass's music kind of flows through through each layer and kind of like lava, <laughs> creating new patterns and and uh, expanding into the landscape. So I think Etude number no. five could reveal that because it starts very, very small and it slowly kind of expands and, and becomes this kind of whole universe of sound.
3: It is gorgeous. Thank you. And <laughs> the effect, effect of the music. It felt to me like deep breathing in an otherwise frantic world, a, a soundbite world. And, and here is this expansive breath. It, it's just beautiful. Imagine someone who has never heard of Philip Glass how would you describe his music you know i
2: think the the thing about philip glass's music is very um actually similar to what you just said which is it's beautiful music a music that breathes you know it, it's music it's it's music that ostensibly is very simple but actually the way that it's evolves is in fact quite complex. But I think what's so wonderful about his music is that it lends itself to a lot of different scenarios. You know, this entire album, actually, these are all my arrangements, and a lot of them are arrangements of piano music that he wrote. But his music has this sort of pureness to it, in my mind, very similar to, to Bach's music albeit from a different <laughs> century and, um, and different aesthetic, but it comes from that, from that same place. It like it flows and it is music that I think connects deeply into kind of our psyche and it, and it music that allows us to kind of breathe as we enter into its universe. And so I find that to be very timely for, for our moment and in, in our, you know, journey
3: here on earth. Yes. And I love how you take it back to Bach. Yeah. It brought to mind immediately one of your great predecessors, the great cellist, Pablo Casals. I read that he began every day playing a prelude and Fugue by Bach at the piano. And he described it as a benediction on the day.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's very true. And Casals was was really my, you know, virtual mentor when I was a little kid. Mm. The first cello music I've ever heard was Pablo Casals when my father played his recordings for me when I was a little 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 girl (laughs) Uh and so yeah very much so you know i start my day uh meditating and and doing yoga but i also after that no matter where i'm going with my you know artistic creation that day i i play bach i try to play it every day i play it on the cello i just find it to be a very grounding experience for me to just kind of evolve from there into whatever crazy thing I attempt
3: <laughs> after that. <laughs> if you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois as speaking with cellist Maya Beiser about her new album of music by Philip Glass. You mentioned your dad's recordings. I have watched your TED Talk more than once, and mm-hmm. in fact, it has had more than a million views, now translated into 35 languages. I was intrigued with what you said about growing up in Israel on a kibbutz, where the sounds of Muslim prayer from a neighboring village mingled with your parents' Janis Joplin records and tango music. How did those diverse sounds, including Pablo Casals, how did those sounds permeate your formative years as a music student? Yeah, you know, I
2: think that the one very important effect that that had taking in as, as a child, all these different types of music, you know, the Mediterranean, the beautiful music, Arabic uh, tradition of music, you know, Jewish music, the tango music. My father is Argentinian, so he was very much into tango and then particularly Astor Piazzolla, mm. And, the music that I was exposed to, Brian Eno, and um, avant-garde music, John Cage, um, all of it together, for me, the one thread was that it was all music. And I I never saw or, or felt the boundaries that we sometimes put into these different genres. and And so I think that I just... Uh, set up to evolve as an artist with this kind of worldview, which is to allow myself to be open always to anything that touches me. And so I, I'm much less interested in, in genres or in all these kind of boundaries that we put between us as people and, and much more interested in, in the deeper connection that exists and that all these different kinds of music, I think, reveal.
3: And certainly, though he is situated, for the most part, in the classical realm, Philip Glatz's music is a marvelous gateway in the ways you describe about transcending genres. Let's talk about another track on the recording, Mad Rush. Yes. (laughs) The use of repetition in Philip Glass's music has been described as hypnotic. I thought about an earlier recording of yours, trance classical, love the pun, and wondered if that element drew you to this piece, to Mad Rush. Would you guide us through a bit of it?
2: Mad Rush is really one of Philip Glass's greatest, I think, pieces. It was written in 1979. It's originally for piano. It's a real virtuosic piano piece. this work as a multi cello track was to explore the hallucinatory quality of that piece and you know I wanted to create a sonic cello kaleidoscope. We recorded at this beautiful old opera house in upstate New York. This was during the dark days of COVID winter and it was just me and my sound engineer. I was sitting on one side of this huge space and And he was on the other side of the hall, and we had eight sets of different sets of mics positioned throughout the entire space. And what we created was this kind of perspective on the piece. So if you you will hear in the beginning, it starts and then it sort of goes. It becomes really far and then comes back. And it's pretty subtle, but I really wanted to create this sense of kaleidoscope with this piece. So there there's this beautiful repeated melody, it's just four bars. And it comes back over and over again, over that whole 17 minutes of the piece. But then, you know, it sort of explodes into like these different, you know, moments of um, craziness <laughs> throughout, but then it always comes back. It always comes back to this four bars. And so there's something I think really, reassuring about this piece you know even though it's it's kind of crazy and in, and in many ways it's also very virtuosic for for the cello and and uh, in the fast parts it's quite challenging but it ends with this incredibly beautiful melody that's kind of just goes up to the status for yours and so i think it really is a journey that piece it's 17 minutes it's um it was a challenge to record, and and to be frank, I wasn't uh, sure if it's
3: gonna work, but I hope it did. <laughs> oh, I think you achieved that kaleidoscope effect for certain. And the way that a kaleidoscope is constantly changing, yet it's done with this basic motif, a basic theme, that goes throughout, it comes back to that beautiful melody you talked about at the end. The last four tracks of the album, Nakwekatsi, Masked Man, New World, and Old World are from the Nakwekatsi score. The film score is part of a trilogy, and that's a Hopi word meaning life as war. In the film's closing credits, Nakai is also translated as civilized violence and a life of killing each other. Exactly, yeah. I went back and looked at a review by Roger Ebert, and he wrote that the soundtrack, Philip Glass's music, which featured Yo-Yo Ma in the role that you play later, that this soundtrack is every bit as essential for the viewer's experience as what we see on the screen. Would you talk about how Glass's music is essential to the experience of viewing those films?
2: Yes, I think the music is. I think it's where it's coming from. You know, I mean, for one, it was a very, very tight collaboration, and in particularly, I feel in Nakoi Katsi, the music is just so. It's tremendous, and in some ways, it transcends the film, which is why I felt that it was, it was okay to record it as a as a music piece on its own because it's so powerful and and so beautiful human experience and I feel like in particular in these times that we that we are living today when I set up to start creating those arrangements during the summer of, of lots of violence all, of, all around the country but in New York and with George Floyd just such sense of grief you know around for me about what you know what we do to each other and how we are unable to see the humanity in all of us and so i think you don't necessarily need to see the film or to know anything about it because philip's class music is just it's just there and it tells you everything
3: you need to know mm. but knowing the context can add to our appreciation. Would you tell us about your role as visiting artist at the MIT Center for Art, Science, and Technology?
2: You know, it's been a really wonderful experience being part of this. I was invited to to be the artist-in-residence there, and what was wonderful about it is that it was really not, there was no particular directive of what I should be doing with this. It was really about just me kind of dreaming projects and trying different things. And so I did, I mean, well, one of the projects that we did while I was physically there, this was pre-COVID of course, was uh, we, we did this project recreating David Bowie's Black Star album for cello and orchestra but we also got some wonderful people that, that created a special cello for me that was able to respond to the music with the visuals and uh, we did this performance actually I think people could probably see some of the videos on my youtube channel we did this performance in boston at the gardner museum but it was just a really wonderful exploration collaborating with different labs at mit and there're still things that are coming out of it that are not quite yet you know mature but i love to connect with scientists and I'd love to try to explore different ways and particularly different ways to incorporate my music into, into a physical universe. So to, to find ways to have the music influence the, the physical universe and vice versa. Um, so that's kind of where it's been. but in, and, and also connecting with students and, and uh, the entire MIT community was really a great experience.
3: Cellist Maya Advisor. You can learn more about her new album, Maya advisor x Philip Glass, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up. Filmmaker Tracy Heather Strain on her documentary Lorraine Hansberry cited Eyes Feeling Heart. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Many know that playwright and activist Lorraine Hansberry was the first African-American woman to have a play produced on Broadway. Less known is that her influence went far beyond Raisin in the Sun. Tracy Heather Strain made the first feature-length documentary about Lorraine Hansberry, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart, which is available for streaming with PBS Passport. When the documentary was released, Tracy Heather Strain joined me in the WABE studios and began telling me how her discovery of Lorraine Hansberry transformed her.
0: I'd been thinking about Lorraine and doing research on and off for years. It is more than just a sort of labor of love. It's almost like a calling. It sounds
3: like it, and um, you deliver. Great to hear, thank (laughs) you. Truly, your film conveys how much Lorraine Hansberry ought to be known Her work has such resonance in our own time. Sidney Poitier's Oscar for his performance in Lilies of the Field, which was released in 1964, five years after the Broadway premiere of A Raisin in the Sun. How important was Sidney Poitier to the success of the play and later the film?
0: Sidney... Portier was very important to the success of A Raisin in the Sun, even though it was very challenging for them to raise the money for the play because no one wanted to fund a play about African Americans that was a drama. Um, because Sidney Portier was already the biggest black movie star. Um, they were able to raise money based on his involvement. And he's the one that already knew Lloyd Richards and recommended his friend Lloyd Richards to be the director. By the way, A Raisin in the Sun is the first play by an African American woman to be produced on Broadway. Um, other, you know, Blankston Hughes had a play on Broadway before that. and I, Some other people, too. So
3: Sidney Poitier was crucial to getting the funding for the play and later the movie. I mean, what did it take? Almost a year that the man's rose. Was the name
0: Phil Rose, was it? Yes, Phil Rose was Lorraine Hansberry's friend and her husband's friend through their radical left circles. And he was a record producer. And he came to the first reading of the play that became A Raisin in the Sun and was really struck by the characters. And he calls her up and says, I want to produce your play, and I want to produce it on Broadway. And I think Lorraine, based on what I know from the research, she didn't expect her play to go to Broadway. She thought her play would be performed maybe in Harlem like her friends who were playwrights' plays you know, had been performed. So, um, yeah, it was challenging from the raise the money. In fact, before there was a Kickstarter, it seemed like Raisin in the Sun was... The money was raised in small increments. Harry Belafonte was one of the larger funders of uh, A Raisin in the Sun, but Phil Rose took the money where he could get it, and he only had enough money for tryouts in two cities, New Haven and Philadelphia. And fortunately, each time it was performed, momentum started gathering. But they were doing this without any guarantee of a New York theater, And fortunately, the Schubert, uh, one of the Schubert's came to one of the Philadelphia performances and said, okay, we can do this. We will put you into New York. The thing that we don't have a chance to get into in the documentary is they didn't have a theater quite yet, so they sent the production to Chicago, and then they brought them into New York.
3: And of course, with Lorraine Hansberry being from Chicago, there was significance in that too. For a playwright... Lorraine Hansberry's own life, her own life story, has quite a dramatic narrative. Would you tell us about her roots?
0: Yeah, sure. Lorraine was born in the south side of Chicago in 1930. She was born to two parents who had gone to college. Her father became successful in real estate. He bought buildings and then cut them up into kitchenettes. He's known, uh, he was known as the kitchenette king. And um, and he was successful at it. Uh, and uh, Lorraine was the youngest of four children, separated by seven years. And so she spent a lot of time by herself. And her personality also seems to be one of a watcher, thinker, reader. and And she took in everything that was going on on the South Side during the Depression, during World War II, and was already interested in writing. She was very, very verbal. She also had a family that debated ideas. People came through the house. As her cousin Chanel Perry says, they they listened to these people talk. And they were also a very race-conscious family in the sense that they felt like it was their duty because they had were given much to, to do things to help change um, the fortunes of other African Americans. And one of the major things they were involved in is trying to open up more homes for African Americans because everyone was, most everyone was segregated in the south side of Chicago. Indeed.
3: And so here she's from this well educated, well to do family. But that didn't protect her from racism. And she had a transformative shocking experience as a little girl.
0: Yes, when she was seven years old, her family, as part of a test case, moved to an all-white street, and uh, they were. she and her sister were sitting on the porch, and a mob came, and the, they had like a family bodyguard got them inside the house, but someone threw a brick, and the brick or piece of mortar almost hit Lorraine. And it was a traumatic thing that stayed with her. And the original ending of a, what became *A Raisin in the Sun* actually ended with the family moving out into the white neighborhood with a mob coming. So you can tell that, you know, it really, you know, resonated with her. It was a, it was a, quite an emotional event yeah, for and, her. And, and such a little girl, and of course, sadly, um, countless
3: families have to explain this sort of mentality to innocent children. We have this very refined, super intellectual person in the form of Lorraine Hansberry, who believes in the power of art, and theater in particular, to take on social issues.
0: And the thing is that she's coming from an analysis, she was very radical in her politics and and because of her politics on the left and she had been a you know a member of the communist party for a period of time the working class people were part of you know what she was focused on she felt like the it's from the people who were the working class that were going to change society and so while you know she's from this sort of talented tenth kind of family she felt the working people men and women were the ones who really were gonna make and had to make the change for a new world order in a a certain way. Yes,
3: so in addition to depicting the everyday concerns of working class black people, what was extraordinary about her treatment of the characters in Raisin?
0: Well, I think Raisin and the Sun First of all, as Amani Perry says on camera, this is like the first time Lorraine is presenting the interior life of the African-American experience, but also the interior of specific characters. So take, for example, the character Benita. Benita is a character based on her own self. She said, I was making fun of my 22-year-old self. And... um you know, so the college girl trying a lot of different things wants to be something in the world. She wants to be a doctor. Um, and and she has this choice between two young men in her life. And, and so they represent, you know, one guy represents the kind of uh, boy from a family similar to her own, you know, well-off. And then she has the African student, revolutionary, you know, um, as the other suitor. And so, you know, these are things that I think Hansbury had to encounter and wrestle with her, herself, so she's bringing these these. So Beneatha's trying to make these kinds of choices and find her way. So you have that, but then you have this larger experience of you know, African Americans. You know, people have all different aspirations and interests and goals, and she tries to present a a range of experiences. The mother, you know, she came up to Chicago as part of the Great Migration. That's one story right there. That's an important story in the American story. You know, the great migration really changed American cities.
3: Oh, yes. Isabel Wilkerson lives in Atlanta, we're very proud to say. And um,
0: I love that book. That book, I I, I read that book, because I wanted to read it. The warmth
3: of other signs.
0: Yes. And I but I also read it as a way to kind of think about stories about, you know, the the Great Migration because I wanted to make sure what I included in the as part of the Great Migration at least resonated in a way. And I found her book so moving and helpful and I cried in oh, so yes. many parts of it. It is exquisite. And the dialogue
3: in A Raisin in the Sun reflects that that new world after migrating to Chicago. We have a clip of Sydney Poitier and Ruby D, that reveals some of the concerns, the struggles of our characters.
1: Charlie Atkins was a good-for-nothing loudmouth too, wasn't he? When he wanted me to go in the dry-cleaning business with him. Now he's grossing $100,000 a year. $100,000 a year. Still call him a loudmouth good-for-nothing. Oh, Walter. Oh, Walter. You're tired, ain't you, baby? You owe oh so tired of everything. Me, the boy, the way we live in this beat-up hole, everything. Moaning and groaning all the time, but you wouldn't do nothing to help, would you? I mean, you couldn't be on my side that long for nothing, Walter,
3: please, on. leave me alone.
1: Man needs a woman to back him up here. You know? Walter! And Mama would listen to you, you know she listens to you more you do me and Benny. She thinks more of you. Look, all you got to do is sit down with her one morning, when you're having your coffee and talking about things like you do. Just say kind of easy like that you've been thinking about this little Dean Walter Lee's so interested in, about the store and all. Just keep sipping away at your coffee like what you're saying. Ain't that important to you? Before you know it, she's listening good and asking you questions. Then when I come home, I fill in the details. Please leave me alone. Okay. This a fly-by-night operation. I mean, we got this thing figured out, me, William Bobo.
3: What is Sidney Poitier as Walter Lee? What is he pleading for?
0: He wants his wife to support this idea that he has to invest in a liquor store. And the film the play and the film is about this clash of what to do with 10,000 a 10,000 dollar insurance check that the family received after the, um Walter Lee's character his father died i mean Walter Lee's father's character died and um and uh and so they're really Everyone wants something different. The mother wants to move the family out of this cramped kitchenette where you know Walter Lee's son has to sleep on the couch and doesn't get enough sleep because sometimes Walter Lee's, you know, hanging out with his friends late at night. You know, the grandmother or you know, Lena Younger and Benita share a room, so it's really crowded and she feels the mother feels like it's important for the family to have a, its own place. And she wants wanted to support her daughter Benita's dream of becoming a doctor. But Sidney Poitier's character, Walter Lee, Wants to go into business. He's a chauffeur, and he sees he drives around men um, who are doing deals, and he sees these young people, and he thinks, as Sidney Poitier says in the film, he his character he thought his character had knew what he was doing, he had the wherewithal. But he he Sidney talks about how his character really didn't really have you know what it took to even start a liquor store um, because he didn't have the experience. But he he wanted to be a man, as Sidney says.
3: An important thread throughout your documentary is Lorraine Hansberry's willingness to defy convention. You mentioned the character of Beneatha. What are some other examples? She married a white man, and we said she was a member of the Communist Party. How else did her defiance of convention play out in her life?
0: Well, she was, as you mentioned earlier in the show, she was she believed in the power of art. So one of the things is that she was really outspoken in terms of issues like peace movements. And when Paul Robeson's passport was canceled and he couldn't travel to the World Peace Conference in Uruguay, she took his place. And in fact, she told the State Department she was going to Europe. She went to this, quote unquote, illegal peace conference in Uruguay. And then when she came back, her passport was canceled. And it, that's what started her lifelong um, surveillance by the FBI.
3: Oh, so she, Such a badge of honor in those days. <laughs> if you were really a great artist, you're on Hoover's list. Huh?
0: Yeah, so, uh, so there's that. And then some people, it, a lot of people have been aware for some time that Lorraine Hansberry was, you know, secretly um, a married lesbian. And... Um, and so that's, for some people, that may be a new revelation. But uh, a lot of people look at the writings that she did to the publication, the latter, which was a publication of uh, an organization called the Daughters of Belatus And like everything she did, she wrestled with ideas and analyzed it. And she was analyzing being a married lesbian and, and issues related to being homosexual. So like, again, like everything else, it wasn't just light, She really wanted to, like, examine things, and she had ideas about this and that and looked forward to society changing.
3: The award-winning documentarian Tracy Heather Strain. In a moment, we'll return with more of our conversation about her film Lorraine Hansberry, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you are just joining us, we're listening back to my conversation with a filmmaker, Tracy Heather Strain. Her documentary, Lorraine Hansberry, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart, is available for streaming on PBS Passport Here, Strain speaks to Hansberry's enduring friendship with her ex-husband.
0: We have her quoted in the documentary. Um, She said, Bob and I have been, Bob being Robert Namoroff, have been getting divorced for years, but we remain the closest of friends, I suppose. So (laughs) uh, he, if you look, Look in her papers, you see that he took care of things, he interacted with her, he produced her second and last play to premiere on Broadway while she was still alive, called The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, so yes, he was trying to, you know, he was making things happen. They didn't get divorced until uh, early 1964, he went and got a Mexican divorce, because in New York you couldn't just get a divorce very easily. And uh, but no one knew until she died that they had been divorced for almost a year. Well, in fact, he
3: it was Robert Nemiroff who knew about her cancer before she did.
0: Yes, in <laughs> fact, a lot of people knew about her cancer before she did. Yeah, we did research on this, and and we talked, you know, with a lot of people. And my parents are born in the '30s, and my in-laws also, and so everyone confirmed back then. People didn't often did not tell you that you had cancer. I don't know if anyone saw Mad Men, but when Betty got cancer, they called her husband in, they did tell her, but it it was handled very differently. And we even found research to confirm that in that time period in the sixties, doctors did not often tell their patients that they had cancer. So it's hard to know if she would make she would have made different choices had she known. Um, But we were fortunate that um, Bert DeLugoff, who unfortunately passed away recently, so he did not get a chance to see the completed film, who was her friend and her tenant, you know, said, I was one of the people who made the decision not to tell her he was a physician.
3: In. Talking about her in addressing her activism in the film, you brought out very young upon moving to New York after um, a year of college at the University of Wisconsin, two years of college at the University of Wisconsin, she moved to New York to write for Freedom. Which was a publication Paul Robeson founded, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, Shortly after she moved to New York for what she described as an education of another kind, she joined the staff at Freedom first as a typist and sort of you know entry level person and did did a lot of different things and then but she also started writing and moved up very quickly. She was surrounded by artists and activists, including Paul Robeson, who was an internationally famous singer. Actor, uh, activist. Yeah, he was. He was. He wanted. He had a law degree, you know, and and he expected he wanted to be a lawyer, but because of discrimination, he he couldn't get you know the kind of job that was commem, commensurate with his his education. Um, but so imagine just being in a, a, a newspaper with Paul Robeson, and then you have Du Bois working nearby who also believed in the power of art an artist to change things. Alice Childress is working there who was an actress who had been in Anna Lucasta on Broadway. She was writing plays and things. And there's all these other women, men as well, but there was also a lot of women working at Freedom who were involved not just in, um, you know, Journalism um, and writing articles, but they were activists as well, and so it was kind of a training ground. I like to think of Hansbury getting her ten thousand hours in of, as an activist early on, starting with her childhood with these parents that were activists, and then kind of moving at Wisconsin, she was involved in the young progressives of America. she was the president her second year, and she worked on the wall at Henry Wallace campaign and then she goes to New York and you know it's kind of like a new education. Um, but then decides that the way she wants to reach people is through the theater, you know, and so she, she leaves freedom.
3: She leaves freedom because she believes that there is this power in theater to not only address social issues, but to show us how we might tackle them, overcome them. It was disheartening to discover her frustration with Bobby Kennedy that you bring out toward the end of the film?
0: Yeah, people, there's a way that, like, even with Lorraine Hansberry, there's a mythology about who she was, you know, if you're not armed with all of the information, and like with any historical figure, over time, more things come out. But we think of Bobby Kennedy in sort of this period, like, oh, he's down with all all these rights for people and the yeah. poor but be, he was someplace else before he became that bobby kennedy and in the middle of the birmingham civil rights campaign um he was not at the place of that we know of him now of someone really caring about all but these but he issues. was already attorney general he was yeah he was attorney general but in in some ways he was more concerned about you know law and order and not having violence um, than in some ways about the actual civil rights issues. And so Lorraine and the other people who joined James Baldwin at this meeting at the in the Kennedy family apartment in New York were very frustrated because it was almost like he could not hear them. They were speaking, and and he couldn't hear what they were saying. And it was very frustrating. And, in fact, he brought up something about, you know, his family came from Ireland, and look, you know, what they've done, and... Not quite. And you know Baldwin's (laughs) saying something like, "We've been here longer, and you know there's reasons that you know things haven't progressed." And you know you have to remember this is 1963. We haven't passed the voting rights. You know there's a lot of stuff that hasn't happened. A lot of people still couldn't vote in the South, and and that's what they were protesting. And and so it's, it was really interesting uh, to re- think about that meeting and, um, and realize that here you have this woman who's really verbal, is interested in communicating, but and she has this opportunity almost to speak to the most powerful person yeah. on the planet, right? And he can't hear her. It just brought to mind,
3: for me, immediately Dr. King's words, we have waited long enough, and then, in common parlance, another part of me wanted to turn to RFK and say, Really? <laughs> Fortunately, things progressed.
0: Yeah, it was. It's interesting. There's some ugly name calling in the papers afterwards. It was. It's. It was. It's a real ordeal. And you know, because it's a visual medium, we can't get. We couldn't get into all of that, and it was going to take away from Lorraine's story. But it's worth reading more about that.
3: Here's an excerpt of her 1959 interview with the journalist and oral historian Studs Terkel. They were speaking after Miss Hansbury had won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award.
1: I don't have the right to be very personal about the reception to this play because I think the reception to this play transcends what I did or what Sidney Poitier or Lloyd Richards or Philip Rose or any of us connected with it. I think what it reflects at this moment is that at this particular moment in our country, as backward and as depressed as I, for instance, am about so much of it, There's a new mood. I think we went through eight to 10 years of misery under McCarthy and all that nonsense. And uh, to the great credit of the American people, they got rid of it and they're feeling like make new sounds. And I'm glad I was here to make one, you know. Beautiful, make new sounds, that's the best of jazzmen say that too, but in this case certainly one of the most sensitive of writers says it. It's a close relationship. <laughs> I've often said that uh, the glory of Langston Hughes was that he, uh, he took the quality of the blues and put it into our poetry. And I think when uh, the negro dramatist can begin to approach a little of that quality, he might almost get close to what O'Casey does in putting the Irish folk song into play. I'd like
2: to. I think Lorraine Hansberry is on that road, certainly. Thank you very much.
1: Studs
3: circle with Lorraine Hansberry in 1959. She was only 35 when she died uh, in 1965.
0: What are your greatest hopes for this documentary? Well, I'm hoping that a lot of people will be interested in tuning in to see it, and that they will... Have a new level of appreciation of who Lorraine Hansberry was. In particular, it's taught in almost every school in North America. And I think that teachers and students and anybody else who's interested in the play will have a new appreciation of the play, A Raisin in the Sun, once they understand more about who Lorraine Hansberry was. As someone said on a show I was on recently, she has been kind of preserved in the amber in a certain way that doesn't really represent the fullness of who she is. She's kind of this icon uh, of one of many black firsts in the post-World War II period. And um, like any icons, there's a complex human being there. And I'm excited to have people know who she was.
3: Tracy Heather Strain is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, writer, and producer. Her film Lorraine Hansberry, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart, is available for streaming on PBS Passport. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta artist Dawn Williams Boyd tells us about her work recently acquired by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will Find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights' senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer. And our engineer is Shelley Kennavy. I'm your host, Lois Wright, says I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR.